This morning, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 7. And Joshua chapter 7 is a hard chapter because everything has been going so well, and then things are going to crumble. So I want to start, before we even dig into Joshua 7, with reminding you that the horror of sin is defeated by the victory at the cross. You see, we're going to dig in and we're going to talk about sin. But as we talk about sin, I want you to remember that every one of us here are sinners, separated from God. But Jesus died on the cross. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As we talk about sin, don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus solves the sin problem. Romans 10.9 reminds us if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. There is a solution to sin. Because for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling to Jesus solves the sin problem. So as we dig into sin today, remember, the battle's already been won. Jesus already had victory. We simply need to claim it. To place our faith in Jesus, that he died on the cross, made the payment for sin for us. That's the step that we need to take. So as we dig in, don't lose sight of that. At the same time, as we dig into Joshua 7, don't let the sin go unchecked. Don't let the shopping cart go down and continue. Go after it. Don't let it go without taking the time to take it to Christ and let him take care of it. So let's dig in to Joshua chapter 7. We'll start with verses 1 through 5. Joshua 7, starting in verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it. And do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Let me set the stage for us for just a minute. Remember what happened in Joshua chapter 6. The walls of Jericho came crumbling down. Our memory verse for the month is Hebrews 11.30. And I'm sorry, I've thrown you out of order. I went just a little bit out of order here on you. But Hebrews 11.30, let's say it together. Hebrews 11.30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell 
after the army had marched around them for seven days. The walls of Jericho fell by faith. They came crumbling down. Israel was on a spiritual high, a spiritual mountain. The battle of Jericho had been a literal walk in the park, or at least the literal walk around the city. That's all it took in Jericho. The walls came tumbling down. God's strategy involved no effort on the part of the Israelites, and there was no doubt that God was behind Israel's conquest. Next up in the march into Canaan would have been the city of Ai. The city of Ai is probably about two miles from Jericho, so close by. We call it a city. Again, it's more of a fort. Archaeology actually tells us that the city was essentially uninhabited at this point. There were farmers probably who lived around the city, and likely when Israel conquered Jericho, the farmers, in concern for their well-being, would have moved into the rubble of what used to be the city of Ai. It's essentially you know, a pile of rubble with some farmers with their pitchforks defending it. And that's what Joshua's spies notice. There's not much going on there. There's a few families there. Um, I'll make the argument later. I think there were probably about 12 family units. Not a big deal. AI is going to be an easy conquest. We don't really need to worry about it that much. And that's what we read here in Joshua two, uh, 7, verse 2. Joshua sent men to, from Jericho to Ai. They went and spied it out. And they told Joshua, don't worry about this. This is easy. We've got this. There's not much there to worry about. But we need to realize the reality of sin. You see, the reality of sin is that sin often catches its prey when they least expect it. And hidden here in chapter 7 is verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that while Joshua thought everything was great, in fact, everything was not. Because during the battle of Jericho, the man Achan had sinned, had trespassed against God's command. God had commanded, when the walls fall, go up, burn the city, don't take any of it for yourself. And verse 1 tells us that Achan had a sin of commission. He had gone in and he had taken what was supposed to be dedicated to God. Achan had sinned. Verse 1 is really interesting at the end especially because we learn all about Achan. We learn about his sin, that he had been unfaithful. We learn about his family. And we learn about who the sin was credited to. Did you see that at the end of verse 1? If I had been in charge of this, I would have said, so the Lord's anger burned against Achan. Right? He's the one who sinned. But the verse is very explicit. God's anger burned against Israel. One of the principles of sin, I think one of the hardest principles of sin for us to accept, comes out of this fact that Achan's sin was Israel's sin. Achan's sin became Israel's sin. That doesn't seem fair, right? But that's to our minds that that doesn't seem fair. 
God oftentimes expects the group to come together when it comes to sin and to deal with sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin in the camp is the sin of the camp. Sin in the camp is the sin of the camp. And it must be dealt with. There's a second sin, though, here. Not just Achan's sin of commission, but Joshua's sin of omission. I want you to notice what Joshua does. Joshua sends spies to spy out Ai. Joshua sends a military force into Ai, a smaller force, a strike team, into the city of Ai, and the results are devastating. What happens? They are routed. Verse 4 says, uh, so about 3,000 went up. Again, in the book of Joshua, the word thousand often is the same word that we would translate as like military unit. So I think probably a better translation is they sent out three military units, you know, three strike teams, and the result is 36 of them are dead. They lose. This group of, I'm embellishing a little bit, but this group of farmers with pitchforks kills 36 of the soldiers. They turn their backs and they run away, and 36 of them are dead. But notice what Joshua never did. Joshua never went to God before the battle. Joshua's sin of omission was not going to God. After the victory of Jericho, the conquest of Jericho, Joshua could have gone to God and said, what's next? Instead, he jumped ahead. The sin of omission. Let me give you an action step. Take time right now and search for sin. We're going to talk a lot about sin because of Achan's sin, because of Joshua's sin. But if we don't apply it to ourselves, it's meaningless. Take time now. Search for sin in your life. Ask God where you have made sins of commission, where you have gone against what God has called you to do, or sins of omission, where you have failed to do the steps that God has prescribed. Go to God. Confess your sin to God. We're going to move forward. And what I want you to see next comes out of Joshua 7, verses 6 through 9. Joshua 7, starting in verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? What I want you to see here um, over the next several sections is responses to sin. There's three of them. The first response to sin that we're going to talk about today is a wrong response to sin. 
The wrong response to sin often involves blaming God. Initially, Joshua has a good response. He goes to God. He humbles himself. The elders humble themselves. They tear their clothes and they put dust on their head. This was a symbolic act of mourning. This is how you displayed mourning. Joshua's words, though, however, reveal a problem. I want you to notice three responses that Joshua gives that are actually pretty self-centered. And I contend to you that these are actually responses we often make when we're caught in sin. The first response Joshua makes, maybe we shouldn't have stepped out in faith. He says, should we not have crossed the Jordan? All right, I want you to understand the significance of this. Did God want them to cross the Jordan? Yes, that was commanded. Did God bless them in crossing the Jordan? Let's see, the waters split, the walls of Jericho fell. At this point, for Joshua to say, maybe we shouldn't have crossed the Jordan? No. God has blessed you in crossing the Jordan. Something else is wrong. What Joshua's statement of we shouldn't have crossed the Jordan, we shouldn't have stepped out in faith, is Joshua is actually saying, God, you failed us. This is a statement that God failed us. We shouldn't have done this, God. We trusted you, and all of a sudden, we've got 36 men dead. You failed us, God. Notice the next thing that he says. He says, God, others are going to hear of our failure. Word of our failure is going to spread. Other nations are going to hear that 36 of us died at Ai. What he's really saying is, God can't protect us. God, you can't protect us. And then finally, he concludes with this statement. What will you do for your name, God? What are you going to do about your name? You see, what he's saying here is that God needs us. See, oftentimes we respond to sin by blaming God. By saying... God, you failed. By saying, God, you didn't protect me. By saying, God, you need me. That's not true. No, God had not failed Joshua. In fact, God was capable of protecting Joshua. And God's name is going to be glorified whether or not Joshua follows God. So let me give you an action step. Ask yourself, how do I respond to sin in a self-centered sort of way? Let me give you a really, I think, example that I have fallen for many times. How many times do you pray, God, give me victory over this sin? I do oftentimes. No, God's already won the victory. And it's also not about me. The prayer of God, give me victory over this sin, fails to understand that God already won victory. He's already defeated sin. You have no opportunity for victory over sin. God's already done it. Instead, we should be praying, God, help me to accept your victory. Help me to embrace your victory. Help me to depend on your victory. Because God, you're the only one who has victory over sin. We often respond to sin 
in a self-centered way that really puts the blame of our sin on God instead of accepting that God's got the victory. I love God's response to Joshua. Let's look at verses 10 through 18. I want you to pay attention to God's response. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Get up. Knock it off. Verse 11. Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They've lied. They've put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward, clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward, family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward, man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning... Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen." The proper response to the reality of sin is an invitation to God. So the improper response was blaming God. The proper response is an invitation to God. What I want you to see first is that God is qualified to identify sin. God is the one who's qualified. Notice the way God describes the sin. He moves from general too specific. He also always identifies this as Israel's sin. He doesn't say there's one among you who's doing this. He identifies it as this is Israel's sin. And he moves from general to specific. He starts off by saying you violated the covenant. The very thing that is the contract between us, the very reason I am blessing you, you have violated. More specifically, you took something that was devoted to God. That's stealing. God reminds them. It's also lying. And finally, you have concealed this. And then he says, until this sin is resolved, the sin is considered the sin of the entire nation. Until resolution is found, this sin affects all of you. Pretty Pretty bold, pretty direct statements there. But then look what happens in verse 13. God has identified the sin, that there's a sin. 
And what does he say? Go and consecrate yourselves. Well, wait a second. What's going on here? Why is God saying, go consecrate yourselves? God could have just identified right then who it was who sinned. He could have told Joshua. In the process of saying, you violated the covenant, you've stolen, you've lied, you've concealed, and oh, by the way, it's Achan. Right? That'd be an easy detail to add. Instead, God says, go consecrate yourselves because God cares more about the real solution than just a quick fix. God cares more about the real solution than a quick fix for sin. I think telling the people to go consecrate themselves, basically to go take the night in prayer, to submitting to God for the night, God is doing two things here. First of all, he's letting the people search their own hearts. My guess is that Achan's not the only one who has sin in their heart. Achan's the one who's sinned, committed the big sin that needs resolved. But if you're Israel at this point, if you're an Israelite, and Joshua says, I know why, so, why we had 36 people die, we have sin in the camp, we're going to take the night to go and deal with this. I don't know about you, but I know about my heart. I'd be praying. I'd be dealing with sins in my heart, hoping that it wasn't me. I don't know about you. I think that's the first reason God gives them that time. Because he cares about solutions, not a quick fix. The second reason is I think he gave Achan an opportunity here. Achan could have repented. Giving them the night gives Achan the chance to recognize his sin and to bring it forward to God. If you've read the rest of the story, you know Achan doesn't. Achan waits till the very last minute. But he gave Achan the chance. Because God cares about solving our sin problem. Not just this quick punishment fixing it. He cares about the solution more than the quick fix. Then we see the way that this is going to proceed. They're going to draw lots. This was a way in the Old Testament before the Bible was completed that decisions were made about spiritual matters is you would have a bag with stones in it and you would do one of two things. You might write family names on the stones and then reach in and draw one out. Or you might say, is it this family? You'd reach in and draw from a white or a black and see which color you pulled out. It was casting lots. It was the way they worked. We now have the complete word of God as well as the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We don't need to resort to things like that. But that is what Israel had to do. And God says, I will determine the lot. I am the only one God is the only one who's qualified to actually identify the sinner. So remember, the proper response to sin is an invitation to God. Why is it an invitation to God? Because God alone is qualified to identify sin. God alone has the real solution to sin. And God alone is qualified to identify the sinner. So we bring it to God. We live in a world where we like to think we're all sorts of qualified. Um, some of the best stories I've heard spurn from uh, WebMD. Uh, Emily's told me stories about patients coming in and they're convinced that they've got XYZ diagnosis. And you know, they explain all of their symptoms and Emily say, well, why do you think you have that? Well, I looked it up online and this describes it all. And Emily will say, um, 
that only afflicts men and you're a woman. Or some other thing like that. But we like to think we're all sorts of qualified. God is the only one who's actually qualified. So let me give you an action step. I want you to invite God to search your heart and identify sin in your life. Invite God to do the work. Invite God in to search for sin. Let's continue on with verses 19 through 26. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua, and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. The third way that we should respond to sin, the third appropriate response to the reality of sin, is to ruthlessly eliminate sin from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate the sin. You see, the first thing I see here is that sin is always sin against God. Sin declares that God's provision is not enough. When we sin, we are declaring that, God, your way for me is not enough. No matter how you're sinning, it's a declaration that God is not enough. Notice the steps that Achan takes to sin. He saw, he coveted, he partook. In this case, taking it. Saw, coveted, partook. Same steps of sin that happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, 6. Eve saw, saw there was something good to be desired. She desired it, she coveted it, and she took it. Same steps of sin that David committed with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. He saw, he desired, he took. The steps to sin often involve seeing, desiring, and action. It's a sin against God. Notice how they handle the situation. They lay it out before God. You see, 
The right response to sin involves laying the sin out before God. As you ruthlessly seek to eliminate sin from your life, you lay it before God. Finally, sin is more than mere recognition. Sin involves a response. You see, we must both recognize and respond to sin. Achan got the recognition, finally, at the end. But there was no response. There was no remorse. Look at Achan's response. I've sinned before the Lord. It's true. I did it. I know I had all night to have confessed this. I had all night to have dealt with this. But all he does is just say, I've sinned. There's no response, no remorse. And the result is devastating. Because the answer to sin is to ruthlessly eliminate it. Achan, all of his goods, his sons and daughters, I suspect that they were privy to this information. They knew what was going on. And that's probably why they were stoned. Because Deuteronomy 24.16 explicitly says, you cannot punish children for their father's sins. Which leads me to believe they must have been party to the sin. They must have known what was going on. It's interesting that Achan's wife isn't mentioned here. Um, maybe he was a widower, or possibly she didn't know. But, but it is noticeably absent. His wife is not mentioned. Um, the solution is to ruthlessly cut out the sin. I have an older Ford pickup, and Ford pickups have among many problems, one of the problems they have is rust. And one of the things I actually enjoy doing is repairing the rust. And sometimes I do it right, and sometimes I do it quick. When you do it right, you cut a big section of metal out of your car. Because if you're going to fix rust in a car, you have to cut it deep. You can't just paint over it. That won't work. Uh, two years ago, I was working on the truck, and Emily walked into the garage and said, what have you done? Because there was a chunk like this missing out of the side of the truck. I had to cut the rust out. Any evidence of the rust would simply begin rusting again. My action step is to ruthlessly eliminate sin from your life. It may be painful. It may mean sacrifice. It may mean taking something and laying it before God. But remember the beginning of the story. Or the beginning of the sermon. Jesus paid for it. He has the victory. We lay our sin before God knowing not that we're going to warrant punishment by bringing it before God. But rather we're going to warrant forgiveness and victory. Achan's failure was not simply that he took. Achan's failure, I think, was that he failed to confess and repent when the sin had been identified. I wonder how this story would have gone had that night when God said, consecrate yourselves, if Achan had come forward right then and said, I need help. I'm failing. Here's what I did. I think the story would have gone differently. So my 
question, my action, is to ruthlessly eliminate sin from your life. No matter what you are dealing with, no matter what sins God has laid on your heart to confess to him, he will forgive them. Invite God to search your heart. Invite God to look deep. And then lay it before the Lord. Lay it down to God. The sin of one affects the many. Ruthlessly cut sin from your life. Let's pray. Father, Achan's sin was devastating. But it didn't have to be. Because you are a God who deals with sin. We can't deal with sin. We're incapable of it. We lack any ability. But yet you can. And as we talk about sin, I'm reminded of the cross. Because you willingly took our sin. You call on us to lay it down before you, to give it over to you, to admit our failures, and to let you give victory. And so I pray that as we sing this song of invitation, that you would search our hearts. Identify areas where we need to grow. Identify areas where we need to confess. Give us the ability to embrace your victory and to see your forgiveness flow. In Jesus' name, amen.